Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You remember last time we sang that hymn? In the last stanza, the organ gradually quieted down until we were all singing that hymn in a cappella. Uh, of course, we also had some additional singers that day. That was when St. Paul Lutheran High School was here and they were singing. There's another little bit of an aside note. If you go to the county's website that shows property boundaries, they updated their aerial photos and they show our church parking lot rather full and a bus parked out back. Photos were taken that same morning. Anyway, many have viewed our country as a Christian nation. After all, we do say under God in the pledge and in our money, it says in God we trust. But if you notice, the word Christ is not mentioned there. Instead, it's a belief in God, leaving God rather subjective for how people may want to define God. Many of our founding fathers were certainly Christian, but what was very common in those days was the notion of deism. Those who are deists believe in the existence of a God, and they tend to hold to a strong sense of morals from that law that's written in our hearts. But deists will not believe that God is triune as we recognize God to be through Trinity Sunday, last Sunday, confessing God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. They would agree with the opening of our Old Testament lesson today, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But then they won't agree with how Scripture reveals God the Son as the only begotten Son from eternity and God the Holy Spirit as one with God. Deists also do not look at the Bible as a revelation that comes from God. That viewpoint was rather common back in those days. Some have studied religious trends in America and some have asserted that at the founding of America in 1776, only 20% of the people belonged to a Christian congregation. That is a group of Christians that would confess the Holy Trinity. And that number gradually rose until it peaked in the mid-1900s. Throughout American history, it has been common for not only for cultures to become a melting pot, but also the various religious views. Hence, deism was so popular. But then as Christianity gained traction, then more people began to swell to various Christian churches. We must recognize that true Christianity is distinct from American Christian spirituality. And in the same ways, our beliefs as Lutherans are distinguished from American spiritualism. Our Christian beliefs are to come from the scriptures alone, for they testify of Christ, 
and they are profitable for reproof and for teaching and correction in righteousness. The scriptures are inspired by God the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are God's divine revelation, always directing us to our Savior Jesus. Now, because we are Christian, we certainly want our Christian to be guided by Christian values and morals, and especially true Christian beliefs. If all in our country would have this guidance, our people would be much more united when it comes to politics. We would have far fewer broken homes, and businessmen would not be at odds with each other as much. Children would certainly be safer as they play on the streets. Of course, being Christian, though, does not result in utopian living. Strong and devout Christian couples still face challenges within their marriages. And they have to work at their marriage. Their children of these strong and devout Christians still meet need much training and discipline and, of course, forgiveness. Christians keep on sinning because they still have that flesh that they have inherited from Adam. We can see the sins of Christians, such as Abraham, when he lied, not just once, but twice, that Sarah was his sister in an feeble attempt to make sure that he would be safe, putting her, of course, in jeopardy. Or David sinned when he slept with Bathsheba and tried to cover it all up, or Jonah did when he tried to get out of preaching repentance to Nineveh, and when he was angry after Nineveh repented. God establishes churches because we are sinners, and we are in need of grace. Without churches, we would not bother with the word of God. It's pretty clear and true. Those who do not assemble in churches quite rarely read their Bibles at home and submit to the sacred teachings. Instead, what we are inclined to do when we do not listen to the teachings of God's word through the scriptures as proclaimed in the churches, what we do is we succumb to the spiritual trends of the age. Without the scriptures, we would not have a way to hear of Christ's bleeding, dying love. We would have no access to Christian fellowship or Holy Communion. We want people to know Christ and to trust in him. And that's part of what it means to love our neighbor as we are instructed to do in our epistle lesson. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He died, bearing our sin in his body so that we are redeemed from sin. He died so that we would be set free from death. He died so that we too could be set free from the power of the devil. For he lives and he reigns and he gives us the victory and that is love. And so we love because God in Christ first loved us. When God commanded the Israelites that they must love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might, as we heard in our Old Testament lesson, it was because he first loved them. He wasn't exacting from them a love that he was unwilling to give. 
but he loved them. He demonstrated his love for them by continually reminding them of the coming Messiah who would take away their sins. And one of the ways that he was doing that is he was delivering them from their bondage in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And that same love of God is at work today. He is delivering us from our bondage to sin and bringing us ultimately to the promised land of heaven. God also commanded the Israelites to teach the word of God to the next generation. And to not keep this word of God as something to serve as a backup when things really get bad. But to have it on their hearts and their minds and their lips all their lives. Hear again what God said concerning his words. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, it is written, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. God still expects us to emphasize and extol and dwell on his word as much today as when he instructed his people back then. Part of loving our neighbor involves, in addition to telling them the saving word of Christ, to help out the poor. The rich man in today's gospel did not love Lazarus. He wouldn't even bother to give him the table scraps. The poor man, Lazarus, did not choose to be poor, as some sometimes choose to today. He did not find a government that gave for free an endless gravy train so that he could leech off of others' fortunes. Evidently, he was unable to walk, for he was laid at the rich man's gate, and dogs were there to lick his sores, providing more care for him than any human was willing to do. For the most part, his life appeared to be a miserable existence. But he was still loved by God, even if the circumstantial evidence did not appear to be that way. He was still redeemed by Christ, and he continued to belong to God's family. Because he could not place his trust in the comforts that surrounded him, Lazarus trusted solely in his Savior, Jesus. Lazarus believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so when this man, Lazarus, not the same Lazarus whom Jesus did raise from the dead, but when he breathed his last, he was carried to heaven, and his suffering was now over. When we encounter people who have it as poorly as Lazarus did, it is often tempting for us to quickly judge them. We may figure that they must have done some really bad things, and so God's judgment is already upon them. Or we may assume that they have simply been too lazy and therefore they deserve to live as beggars. Or we may see that they truly have had it bad, but then we're unwilling to judge ourselves, claiming innocence for ourselves, and then we conclude we're not getting involved. 
We figure self-righteously that they should have family to look out for them or in our day, a government to provide for them. The problem is, however, the Bible doesn't teach governments should provide for the poor. But the Bible does teach that Christian individuals and Christian churches must care for the poor. American Christians and churches have lost their way in this manner. The government has taken for itself what belongs to the church's responsibility in caring for the poor. If we are the Christian nation that we say that we are, we would not want the government doing what the church has often done so well throughout history. Look at the many hospitals and nursing homes that have been established by Christian churches in our land. Sadly, many of them are being bought up by corporations, further separating the church from one of her primary tasks. And many Christians are unconcerned about these changes, for they like having the notion of no responsibility for the poor, and especially for those who are different than us. The rich man took no responsibility for Lazarus, He ate his fancy foods, but wouldn't even give Lazarus beans or bread. Many would look at the rich man's status and conclude that he must have been loved by God. After all, that was the circumstantial evidence that seemed to be there. But when he died, the rich man was not received into the highest places of heaven. But instead, the rich man was condemned to hell. He received his reward. He trusted in his possessions and luxury in this life. And as a result, he figured that he was already good with God. And while Jesus certainly paid for all of his sin on the cross, the rich man did not receive that forgiveness since he did not live by faith in Jesus. After not noticing Lazarus in this life, the rich man, ironically, finally noticed Lazarus in that life to come. He saw Lazarus at Abraham's bosom. He saw Lazarus is now comforted and set free from all the trials of this life. And then he makes a stunning request. Abraham, send Lazarus to dip my tongue in water, for I am tormented in this flame. Wow. The rich man wanted Lazarus to help him now when he couldn't help Lazarus at all? Is that not a foolishly bold request? Most people would probably opine What comes around goes around. Shouldn't that be the way? Of course not. Remember what our epistle says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother also. And so in love, we help our neighbors in need. 
We serve them even when they are ungrateful. We love our enemies. We do good to those who persecute us. Let's think of it this way. If Lazarus could have regained his health and his strength in, in this life, and at the same time the rich man suddenly faced misery and difficulty, what should Lazarus then do? The right thing for Lazarus would have been is to help that rich man, despite the rich man's refusal to help him. If, the, if Lazarus refused to help the rich man in this life, there that phrase would come into being, two wrongs do not make a right. It would have been wrong for Lazarus to coldly say, well, you didn't help me, so I won't help you. But instead, love demands action. But after they both died, there was no way for Lazarus to help the rich man. As Abraham noted, there is a great gulf fixed which separates heaven and hell. There is no crossing over. There are no second chances. Those who die condemned remain condemned. That is God's just decree. So after showing no mercy to Lazarus, now the rich man desires mercy. The rich man is now looking out for his brothers. And so the rich man makes a second request. Because the rich man cannot leave hell, he now wants Lazarus to leave heaven. Lazarus to rise from the dead, go back and warn the rich man's five brothers so that they may hear and believe. But Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Basically what Abraham was saying is, let them listen to the Bible. And what this does is it teaches us the great power that is found in the word of God. After all, God the Holy Spirit is at work in his word, accomplishing what he pleases through his word. In love, God gave us his word, and through it we know who God is and what he has done for our salvation. That God the Father sent his only begotten Son to pay for our sins as he bears them in his body and sheds his innocent blood as the payment, the ransom payment for our many sins. That our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, rose from the grave on the third day for our justification. And through Christ, all our sins are canceled out, even our lack of love and the many times we have failed to help those who are in need. The rich man knows his brothers are happily ignoring the scriptures. He knows that they are spending their lives fretting over trifles and getting things which have no solid ground. And so the rich man makes the case that more is needed to convince his brothers than simply the word of God. They need to witness a resurrection, the rich man claims. Then they'll finally repent. But Abraham responds saying that they will not repent if they will not listen to the word of God, even if they do witness a resurrection. After all, there is one resurrection for us to all know about. And that is the resurrection of our Savior, who is crucified and has been raised from the dead. The crucified one is certainly 
risen. He is not dead, but our God lives. And he alone gives us hope through his resurrection. Therefore, we do not need others to come back to tell us what heaven is like in order to believe. We have the all-sufficient, life-giving, saving word of God as revealed in the Bible. And that is the exact point that Abraham was making. And more specifically, remember, this is Jesus speaking today's gospel. This is the point of our Lord Christ. Our hope is not found in the religious trends in America. Our hope is not found in what the government can do for us. Our hope is not found in the many modern luxuries or amenities. I find it a bit ironic, I must admit, that I had written these things not knowing that we would have no electricity in this building from just after 6 o'clock until almost 9 o'clock. Thankfully, our hope is not found in these modern luxuries or amenities. But our hope is found in Christ alone, and he's, for he alone saves us, and he grants us the victory. He opens the gates of heaven to us so that we can also go and be by Abraham's side, rest with the saints, and on the last day be raised from the dead. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.